Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Redboard Rewind. Today, we're going to be going over races from Belmont and Keeneland, talking about concepts such as what to do with cold morning line favorites, how do you solve a problem like Chad Brown, as well as going over an underappreciated angle in maiden races. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old story. Hello and welcome to Redboard Rewind. I am not Spencer Lugenbuehl. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. Back with you on the In The Money Airwaves. We are going to keep this format going for Redboard Rewind that we did last week where we hear the race calls. We talk about the race as if we haven't heard the outcome yet and then do a little bit of deconstruction, sort of a three-part situation. But I thought this week I wanted to get involved back in the hosting chair for various reasons. And the good news is Spencer is still here. Spencer, how are you doing today? I'm good today, Pete. How are you? Things are good. Was over in England on the weekend. Was there for Champions Day. There would have been some good red board races from Champions Day as well. But we're going to leave those alone. On Sunday, I was on Sky Sports Racing. So I did the full card at Keeneland and Belmont. And then after the fact, we put our heads together and came up with three races we want to look at. How about you? Were you actively playing over the weekend or more following from afar? I know you have a, a real job you have to deal with sometimes. I was definitely following from afar this week. We were kind of busy at the restaurant and then trying to get stuff for the website, hyped up for Breeders' Cup, trying to get everybody's spot in place. So watched a little bit on Sunday, which I could have watched more on Saturday, but I got a couple of these races down. I'm ready to talk about them. Excellent. Uh before we get to that, tell us about what's going on at Daily Gallup in terms of your special Breeders' Cup coverage. Of course, on the network, we're going to have all kinds of stuff. We've got the Monster Pods coming this week where we're going to look into all of the Breeders' Cup races off the pre-entries. Next week, we're looking to have some special content and also going to have, I'll announce it here, a Final Answers Breeders' Cup show where reviving our tradition, me, JK, Matt Bernier going to have a lot of fun with that one letting uh and i'm going to try to twist matt's arm and make him host at least half the breeders cup show he may be a little rusty in that regard but we'll get him back on the beam but what about daily gallop what's going on over there so we had a nice meeting last night me and a couple of the guys who run the site and what we're hoping to do is do kind of like a drf a la consensus pick with about five of us doing every race we're going to have special handicappers that we uh have doing other tracks that are actually going to single in on one race, do a preview, a recap, and just a full blown out analysis. So we're going to be busy these next couple of weeks here for Breeders Cup. It sounds great. The dailygallop.net is your site. And then of course you can check out in the money for all our stuff. And I'll be also making all kinds of written contributions over at at the races.com, including uh, we wrote about 15 contender profiles following some of the top stories. And then the actual tipping, I'll be doing a prep analysis piece for each Breeders' Cup race, and that will come with a verdict. So some some tipping will be happening in there. I did make a bet while I was over in the UK on the Breeders' Cup 
Breeders' Cup Classic. This is one I've talked about before a little bit on the podcast, and I wrote something a couple of weeks ago for attheraces.com about it. Breeders' Cup Classic, Seeking the Soul, 33 to 1. I took a little wow. bit of each, yeah, I took a little bit of each way money on that. And the way each way works is it's uh, basically the each way is one way is win, the other way is is show. They call it place. Their place is our show. The top three positions and a 50 odds. So something on the order of uh, north of six to one if Seeking the Soul can manage to make the frame hit the board, which I think is quite possible. And I wouldn't put him past winning the whole thing, depending on how it all shakes out, assuming everything is going well in the Seeking the Soul uh, camp. But I'm looking forward to it. That's my one wager so far. You think I got the value there? I think you definitely got the value. That horse is just always, always around the board, either second, third. He's got a couple wins I think it's a really good value pick for you. All right, excellent. Oh, Mugs, the handicapping Labrador, likes it too. She just voiced her approval with a sneeze in the background. We haven't <laughs> had many barks lately, but we get a sneeze. All right, we're going to start off with a race at Keeneland, then we're going to move to Belmont. But let's go to race number five at Keeneland on Sunday. This is a six furlong dirt allowance, some horses dropping out of stakes races in here. And just looking at the board, you can see what a contentious race this was because five of the seven runners, as they're about to go to post here, end up under six to one. The public were wowed by number seven, Bourbon Calling. Bourbon Calling went off the favorite at nine to five off a three to one morning line. I just wasn't sure about the pace for him because Timeform had projected this pace as favoring a horse on or near the lead. I went with that assessment. Before we talk about what you thought about any of the individual runners, what did you think of the pace in Sunday's fifth race at Keeneland? When I looked through the pace scenario, I thought that the three fortunes gold might be one to get out on top of the lead there. I thought another horse like Dumpf might show a little bit of pace pressure and the six get hammered looks like they might be showing a little bit more speed as well. So I thought that with those three horses on the lead, it might almost be different than what the pace projector said, and it might actually set up for a closer. You know, that was a that was that was probably a smart assessment. We'll get to, to what actually happened in a minute. I agreed with Fortune's Fool making the lead, and I actually upgraded him a little bit, especially because he was 4-1 to one off that 3-1 to one morning line. I thought there might be a little bit of value there, but it sounds like you thought those others would keep Fortune's Fool company enough that that's not where you ended up going. I think it's always interesting when a horse at lower odds kind of bumps up. There's a thing in one of the handicapping books where it says never take a, a morning line favorite that's higher than his morning line odds. Like they did like a thousand race sequence and it ended up like you lost a ton of money betting that way. The, the horse looked so good, the improved speed, the improved workouts. And then he also had, uh, he was one of the highest last out buyers out of the last races coming into this race, the number three fortunes pool. I want to talk about the morning line favorite, who's a horse we haven't talked about yet. Release the Thunder, dropping out of a stakes race for Clement and Castellano. This one had run well four times in a row and made plenty of sense, but I don't know why I I just wasn't uh, overly excited. There is that angle. That's an interesting angle from one of the old books, the idea of the cold on the board morning line favorite. I, that's 
logical to me. I'm sure that was an old study. Gosh, we may have to have at some point uh, John Camardo look into that to see if that angle's gone forward. There's a real logic to me when the horse is obvious enough for the morning line maker to make the horse the favorite and the horse drifts up over that number, the idea that there might be a little bit of a hole in the horse, that, that certainly makes sense to me. What did you think of Release the Thunder? Through my first uh, scenario, I had him circled as a possible contender. I like that at this distance, he's six for six in the money. The last three or four races fit. I don't know how much a $71,000 stake at Monmouth like, is a drop going down to the allowance ranks at Keeneland. So he was a circle for me. I thought he would take money for Castellano being on, but I thought that this race was very contentious, which we'll get into with urban calling being such a short price to me. That's a really good point you make, Spencer, about the difference in the two class levels. I am very fortunate. I have access to some private par figures that our friend Sean Borman creates. And he has that Monmouth stake as typically going in a 91 and this level allowance at Keeneland going in an 87. So your point is well taken. I mean, it is a drop, but it's not anything all that dramatic. I want to talk to you about the horse that I ended up landing on in here and see if before the fact you would have agreed with me or disagreed with me regarding 12th labor. Wow, Muggs was a big fan. You can hear that chain rattling in the background. This one dropping from a grade one where I thought there was some trouble and gelded since raced on the rail there, which wasn't very good at Saratoga that day, like so many of the days. So this one went on my watch list then. And, you know, maybe this is something that I do to a fault, but I always defer to my watch horses first. I'll, I'll typically, if one of my watch horses shows up in a race where I don't necessarily have a strong opinion otherwise, I'm almost looking to bet them. And over time, I found that to be a profitable strategy. So maybe that's part of the reason why why this one ended up on the top of my list. Um, what did you think of the runner? I think that it's interesting coming out of the grade one. Everyone was so up in arms with the bias this year at Saratoga that where it almost might be a negative because everyone has every horse that was uh, against the bias, like as a horse to watch that, that's going to really hammer the odds down. I thought the horse was interesting uh, getting Hernandez back in the saddle after winning that optional 75 K level one allowance two back. I always like when a rider who isn't always the constant rider on the horse can get back after a few starts. I think people don't look down the PPs enough and you can get a little bit added value there. For dropping out of a grade one, it seemed like he was pretty dead on the board. Didn't really move up or down. I ended up just betting to win. I kept it very simple. That's my inclination anyway. More of a win better or double win better or double player when those are options. If I land on a horse that I don't think is that likely to win, seeking the soul type, uh, more uh, ready to run underneath than to win, that's when I'll start looking at vertical exotics. But when I can keep it simple, I keep it simple. For me, that was a win bet on the number one here. How about you, Spencer? What did you do in this race from a wagering point of view? So the two horses I ended up really liking was Bourbon Calling. Usually with, where this is races on dirt, on turf, you like to see that small incremental buyer increase, but instead we get this with this horse in the dirt. Back in April, or May 12th, had a 78 buyer, and in the next five starts, increased it very slowly up to an 86 in that last race. Had some nice, really good workouts, liked the distance. So I really liked that horse on top. I did not like the odds that it started to go off at, so then I started to look for 
the playable horse underneath. I ended up on the six, get hammered. Uh, Larry Ravelli, very good trainer. When people see horses coming out of Canterbury, Finger Lakes, these lower-rated tracks, they just seem to, like, just lose the money in the wind pour in the exotics. This horse was uh, State Thirsty is a $6,000 sire fee. They paid $180,000 for this horse. They expect this horse to, I think, be a decent runner. And the race at Canterbury fit right underneath these other two horses that we've been talking about with 86 buyers. This horse ran 84. So he has to ship and improve just a little bit to be contentious. So I ended up with a, just a flat 7-6 exacta to try and get some extra added value on the 7 bourbon calling. Now remind the listeners what the price situation was with the horse you ended up putting underneath. The uh, It was... Get hammered was 12 to one on the morning line and he went off at nine to one. So that's interesting. I mean, that's, that's not a very common bet to make just one cold number in an exacta. I mean, what's the logic there in not trying to put uh, something else underneath just out of curiosity. I, I think for me, it's just when you have a smaller bankroll, you really have to be right. And you can't spread. If I have, let's say 20 bucks for this race and I don't really like anything else or I don't want to do like, you know, four separate $5 exactas. I'd rather just go with my gut and just hammer it for 20. And if I'm right, I'm right. And if I'm wrong, well, I'm probably sitting on my hands for the rest of the day. And I'm not playing. I get that idea as the classic action bet. I can't remember if this is in the Davidowitz book or if it's an idea I heard from Andy Beyer. Uh, I know it's something Mike Maloney believes in, which is in an action bet race, you just want to take a little bet a little to win a lot stab. It's not a race that you're attacking because you love the race. If you were to love the race, you'd try to find a way to, to bet it a little more holistically. But if you're just sort of taking a shot, you take a shot to bet a little to win a lot. But I understand from our off-air conversation that this is a race you actually liked a lot. It seems a lot harder to me to identify a race as your prime play and make a bet that has not the greatest chance from a strike rate point of view, just because it's so hard to hit a cold number. How do you reconcile those ideas? Like I said, when I first went through the race, I had circled like three or four horses. This is only a seven horse field. So I have over half the field circled. I could do, you know, just a bunch of different exactas, but then I don't really have a strong opinion. So I made a deeper dive. I saw what the pace was going to be like. I thought, okay, bourbon calling, He's still improving slowly, but surely I didn't really like that. Ian Wilkes was cold so far at the meet two to one. It just didn't seem like a recipe for a win bet. So then I decided to just hit the exacta knowing that that'll be double, triple X, the $6 win bet. And as long as I can get them both, I knew the six would probably be undervalued being from Canterbury. So I know it kind of sounds counterintuitive. Why am I creating a two horse bet when I only like the one horse, but I just didn't want to be, I can bet the same $2 on a win bet and it can win me six, or I can bet $2 on this, on this exacta and I'm going to get paid so much better. All right. Let's hear how it turned out on the track at Keeneland on Sunday. Get hammered comes out running for the lead. Fortune's fool has early speed as well. These two come to the front. As they head up the back stretch, release the thunder is away running third between horses ahead. Dunf 
fourth up on the outside. Mucho, fifth against the rail. Break of three, back to 12th. Labor, gap of over five more back to Bourbon Calling as the field makes the move toward the far turn. Up front, get hammered. On the outside, has a head in front. Fortune's Fool is right there to the inside. Gap of three. Released the Thunder third. It was 22.41 seconds for the opening quarter. Mucho, fourth down toward the inside. Gap of three to 12th. Labor, who changes lanes toward the outside fifth. Still seven from the front. Dunf has lost ground next to last. And Bourbon Calling trails. Bourbon Calling, eight legs from the lead. They turn for home. Get hammered. Ahead in front. And here comes Release the Thunder toward the outside to challenge for the top spot. Mucho looks for running room down toward the inside. 12th Labor and now Bourbon calling. But they've got ground to make up from the outside. Deep stretch at the 16th pole. It is still get hammered and Mucho, but Bourbon calling is running on. Bourbon calling keeps running from the outside. Bourbon calling. Nails get hammered on the line. And there goes the dynamite. Boom goes the dynamite for Spencer calling the cold exacta there in the fifth race at Keeneland. Very, very nice work. What did your $20 straight exacta get you back on that one? It was uh, the exacta paid 26 for a buck. So like around 260 ish something like that. It's a, it's a tremendous hit. Now, this is one of these things where it's a good opportunity, I think, to talk about decisions versus outcomes fantastic outcome for you in that betting but i feel like you make life awfully difficult in a race where you don't love get hammered who ended up being second and triggering that nice exacta but you saw him as one of the contenders and just decided to land on that one number it worked out this time but i'm gonna say on balance in that situation the idea of having some amount of backup given what I heard in your opinion before the race might have made sense. If you follow what I mean, do you, do you accept that criticism or are you just going to thumb your nose at me and say, Hey, I just cashed for two sixty. Go take a walk, Pete. I mean, if there was another horse, I probably would have added, it would have been the three fortunes fool just cause I would have had then both horses that were up on the pace with a deep closer because sometimes when the pace collapses, there's always that one speed horse that seems to just hang on for second or third. But I mean, now that you see it afterwards, yeah, I'd probably tell you to thumb your nose and I'll and take a walk. <laughs> it certainly worked out that time. One thing I noted when looking back at the charts at Keeneland, and then I, I looked at the RacingFlow.com data. Got to get Jake Jacobs at some point on these In the Money airwaves. I talk about Racing Flow a lot, but I, I haven't interviewed him or had – I don't think I've ever had him on the show, and I haven't interviewed him in a long time. He is a friend. I do. We do chat and catch up periodically. But anyway, the Racing Flow numbers had this as a day that was kind to closers. They're just mathematically looking – at how much closing takes place relative to what you'd expect from the fractions. And closers really benefited on this day. And I, and I wondered, in retrospect, if that didn't help Bourbon Calling. But certainly it helped you that your reading of the pace was more accurate than mine and time forms. This was not a case of horses just running one, two, three around the track. What were your thoughts on this race in the aftermath? I'm happy that... The track ended up getting that last little neck up there for Bourbon Calling to get me that nice exacta. I pace for me has always been like the last frontier for me that I just don't have a good grasp on. For me, I'm usually just looking at the running lines and trying to take a formulative guess. I have pace figures in my PPs and I'm slowly trying to learn them as well. But in a race like this, I just saw a lot of ones and twos. And when I see that, I just think of it not as being a pace collapse, but it should set up for a late runner. Which so, PPs? 
which PPs do you typically use? I'm using the DRF formulator PPs. Okay, the formulator PPs. So they have the Timeform US pace line in them, but it's something yep. that you're just sort of developing your game as far as looking at. Absolutely. Spencer, any horses out of this race that you're looking to bet back? Mine for right now would be Mucho. Two races back, he ended up having what was the best turn time in six furlongs. And the key point of putting him on the turf, I don't know why. I think this race was the race in the right direction. I think he is going to sooner or later crack that second level allowance. And as long as Santana can stay with this horse, I think he's a better jockey fit. And I think that he'll end up winning in the near future. When you talk about turn time, explain what that is for the folks that might not know. And how are you making your assessment of it? So what turn time is, is it's a fraction when they go around the turn in six furlong races. And I try and find the lowest fraction because that shows that the horse is making the fastest move or into what is usually the winning move of a race when they go around the turn. So throughout all the other horses, Mucho's time of 22.18 was by far the fastest of his last dirt race. I just didn't like that they kept going back from turf and dirt with him. So I, this is kind of my wait and see approach. And if he ran well here, I was probably going to end up putting him on a watch list for the next race. And he ran good. He ran well, ran third. I may give fortune's fool an excuse in this race. I feel like getting bumped at the start, got the horse lit up. And we talked about the idea that today was a, this Sunday was a day that was maybe kinder to closers. It might need to be a class relief situation, but all I'll say about that race is I don't think it's as bad as it looked. So that's one that I'll make a little note on. Not a full-on put-on-my-horse watch list, oh, I want to bet this one back next time, but one that I make a little excuse for. He might seem like a bit of an in-and-out or two, Pete. If you look at the last four races, he ran a 94 back now, a 59. Then he ran an 86 one back, and in this race he ran a 51. So maybe we'll see that 86-90 again. It's in interesting. Next race. Yeah, I don't usually look at the world that way. I remember when you had JK on the show, and, and there are a lot of people out there who are, do very well with the, the in and out concept. For me, there's usually other reasons why these things happen, but I, I take the point. And for a horse that was tepidly bet too, you know, for whatever reason, maybe today just wasn't the day, and then the horse had trouble. If there are some positive signs and or the right spot, I could definitely see getting back on board of Fortune's Fool. Let's move on to Belmont's fourth race. I was excited about this one, Spencer. It was just a six-horse field, but I had opinions on two of the runners, positive, and there were a couple of horses in here I wasn't having any problem trying to beat. The morning line favorite was in front for Shug McGahee. This is a horse that was on my watch list. Coileen Bawn was two to one on the morning line, and very logical for Christophe Clement, but there were a couple of Chad Browns that had just run okay. And while they were decent prices on the morning line, they ended up getting bet down to a point where I thought there was maybe some value in opposing them. Talking about Bacchanalia, um, actually, I think it was about seven to two before on the morning line and during the running. And then Ava Malone, who was five to one on the morning line, ended up going off at three to one. What was your general view on this race heading in? So it's kind of funny. We were just talking about favorites that if they go higher than their morning line, they're usually bad bets. In front to me just seemed like the horse that I just wanted to really crush this race with. She's by Warfront. I love that the horse ran so good without being bet in the debut. 14 to one, just missed by two lengths. 
And when Suggs' horses run well on in their debut, it just seems like that they're going to improve so much well race by race by race. Uh, Coraline Bond, Christophe Clement has always been one of my favorite turf trainers. The horse just was a favorite and just missed last time out at Kentucky Downs. Everyone loves to bet Chad Brown. And I'm like, okay, when I'm looking at the board, these horses are not being crushed in the market. There's still two horses that are below them. So I'm like, maybe these are actually two chinks in Chad's armor. And I decided to just avoid them completely. I thought that the 78 buyers by the by the one number one Coiline Bond and the number two in front would just be able to beat out the 71 buyer for Ava Malone last time and the Bacchanelli 72. And they were both two closers in a short in a short horse field like this. Two closers. Sometimes they just don't end up getting up ever. Yeah, it's not what you typically want to see in a in a short field. A, a horse that you know is going to have to going to have to come from out of it. So I, I was with you, and and I thought this was that rare opportunity to just say, "Hey, Chad Brown, we're not gonna we're not gonna worry about you." Did you have any thoughts on the rest of the field? Normally, I don't need much excuse to bet on Bill Mott, and I thought because of that short field, Estelle might just have a pace advantage. I ended up siding against just because I liked Coileen Bond and in front too much, but it would be she would have been another reasonable way to go. I This is the horse that I was thinking going through my pace scenario that they would show speed with and maybe could steal the race. But looking back at the last race, 78 buyer off the bench, maybe a bounce candidate. The the big thing for me was when you look at the Chad Brown runners, they just seem to not be able to stay on the racetrack. And I know Chad's amazing with these long layoffs, but maybe a little bit of ouchiness yeah, in these two horses. I don't think I think that's a big mistake to with Chad Brown. I mean, he it's so typical. I mean, look, I didn't like them either. But, I mean, this is a guy who just gives his horses time and runs them only when they're ready. You're going to go poor questioning lightly raced Chad Brown horses thinking that they're thinking that they're ouchy. I can pretty much guarantee that. You know, he runs them when they're ready. So I, I don't think that was it. And, you know, I'll question what you said about a still, too, in that I get it, big race, new top off the bench, with an older horse, I love that for aggression. But when you're talking about a three-year-old filly who had a chunk of the summer off and comes back, look, I didn't like a still either. But I, I would, I'd temper the enthusiasm about about making uh, the, the the bounce assessment with one like that that's still growing and had every reason to mature from from July to September. My bigger issue with a still. And this is something that that uh, I, I will do a lot, and I know J.K. believes in it too. When you look at the price they were the last day, the fact that this horse was all of 38 to 1. Now, and then we're talking about a still now. And maybe you could argue, wow, 38 to 1, she must have been unfit. They must have thought nothing of her chances, and she still ran okay. Maybe she's supposed to move up. But for me, when they're 38 to 1 the last day, and what did she? Do you have it in front of you? What did a, what? What was a still as they were heading to the gate this day? Ten to one. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's still. I mean, that's still a lot better than the six to one of the morning line. But I guess there was also a scratch, so the morning line became became a little bit less relevant here. But she was one I decided to abandon. I just ended up betting in front. The three to one. This didn't seem like the kind of favorite that I minded was longer than the morning line. 
this was one where I thought maybe it was just a case that not everybody was seeing and there were enough other ways to go. I bet to win. And then I did what I'll do as a backup in a lot of situations and played the one way exacto with the horse I was worried about. And that was Coilene Bond. How did you end up approaching this race from a wagering perspective? Just a solid double win bet on the one Coilene Bond and the two in front. All right, let's see how we did. Glenn Bond and in front go out to the early lead. And then it's Funny Flowers back in Alia, followed by Estill and Ava Malone as they make their way into that turn. And it will be in front to take the lead. Funny Flowers on the outside. Kalan Bon rides the rail in third. Estill goes up fourth. Back in Alia, right behind them, running in fifth by two and a half. Ava Malone is the trailer. So on to the back stretch they go, and through an opening quarter mile, in front leads the way over Funny Flowers, who's three quarters of the length behind. The quarter was 24.28 seconds. Estill is third on the outside. Kalan Bon is fourth, and then back in Alia, and Ava Malone is last, and racing about seven lengths off of in front, who is just that up the back stretch. Funny Flowers, three quarters of a length behind, and then it's Estill on the outside of Kalan Bon. Back in Alia travels fifth behind them, four lengths off the lead. Ava Malone is the trailer. In front, in front, through a 48.72 half mile as they make their way into the far turn. Funny Flowers, three quarters of a length behind, running in second. And then it's Estill, followed by Kalan Bond, fourth on the inside, getting shuffled back just a bit. Back in Alia, fifth, and Ava Malone. Around the far turn, in front, a half a length. And then it's Funny Flowers in second. And now here comes a three-wide bid by Estill who's up into second position. Funny Flowers throws in the towel. And then Bacchanalia to the outside and Kalan Bon. Three-quarters in one, 12.8. They're into the stretch, and in front is in front. Coming down to the eighth pole, Bacchanalia. Now charging up on the outside, it's these two, one, two, as they arrive at the eighth pole, and Kalan Bon fights on between them, but didn't get through there. On the far outside, it's Ava Malone. It's Bacchanalia in front. Kalan Bon in second, then in front, and then Ava Malone. It is Bac. Ganalia by a neck on the wire. Ava Malone was second. Kalan Bond was third. In front was fourth. Well, there's just a race I couldn't have been much more wrong about, and you were uh, right there with me in the incorrect seats. What were your thoughts as they crossed the line in this one, Spencer? For someone who plays a lot of Chad Brown, I'm just going to have to play more Chad Brown. <laughs> See, I think that might be... Well, let me put it this way. if If there's a race that comes up and I don't have an opinion. And if it's a spread race in a sequence I need to get through or whatever, I have zero problem automatically, including Chad Brown. But I think when we have an opinion, this is just a case you have to be okay with being wrong. I feel like when you really handicap a race and you have an opinion against these runners, I mean, if you're on the fence, sure, throw it in if it's Chad Brown. But this is one, getting back to the idea of decisions not outcomes that we talked about in the first race i am absolutely fine with my decision and willing to write this off as a bad outcome i worry that if you just start betting every chad brown there's no way you can make money so what percentage were you kidding when you said that i mean i'm definitely kidding chad you have to find the right spots to beat chad i'm now starting just to realize that probably long on the turf is not the right place to be going against him as much when you look at the fractions 24 and 24.28 48.72 i thought that the race was right for someone on the lead in front was in the lead i was getting excited and then coming around the far turn to see the two chad horses just come up and range up i said well i guess he's going to do it he's going to do it again 
And for them to both get by me, I was pretty surprised. When you look at the buyers, they both came back and both ran 81s. They improved 9, 10 points each. Co- Colleen Vaughn only improved one point, and in front actually pretty much just ran a 78 again. I was It was interesting to see in front not improve, knowing that Suge knows, usually improves them race in, race out. Maybe she didn't want to be on the lead. You know, maybe the short field actually hurt her. Maybe she would have run better if she could have had cover and swung out and finished the way you see a lot of McGahee turf horses do. So I would give in front another shot. And the note I had on Coileen Bond, there was a moment there in the stretch where it looked like she could get the split. And she just looked like she wasn't fast enough to accelerate through that hole. And then you go back and look and say, hey, today's a mile and an eighth. And last time at Kentucky Downs was a mile and five sixteenths. And the two times before that were a mile and a quarter for Coileen Bond. You know, she might be good, but she's just found the mile and an eighth a little too sharp. She'd be one I might be interested in stretching back out a little bit, but I think it's going to be tough here. So I'm not ready to give up on in front. Are you going to hold that performance against her? Hold against, probably not. I would like to see maybe what you said and see if they can put her undercover again and see if that makes a difference. Uh, Coileen Bond, I would like to see Joel back aboard the saddle. I'm a huge Junior Alvarado fan. My dad's been a huge Junior fan for his entire life. I just think that Joel, like, we know Joel has some of the best, you know, finishing touches in the game. Maybe he would have gotten the horse through that hole. Not saying that it's Junior's fault either, but I think Joel might be the key to unlocking this horse. That's interesting. I mean, certainly ran well with Joel at Kentucky Downs, but my inclination is that it was an issue. I thought the horse was in a good spot. I really did. It just looked to be watching it again like she wasn't fast enough to hit that hole, but we will see. We will see where they all show up next. And with that, let's move along to Belmont's eighth race from Sunday. This was probably my strongest opinion all day at Belmont. I love this situation. We had a seven-horse maiden special weight race. These are two-year-old fillies going six and a half furlongs. Heavy, heavy favorite in Orsay, who was even money on the morning line, and with good reason. American Pharaoh out of a famous dam, Life at 10, famous slash infamous for those who remember that Breeders' Cup story. A blistering-looking work tab. Had some of those very nice five-furlong works that I felt like would set up well for a six and a half furlong race. But that wasn't the one who really interested me. And I know you and I felt similarly heading into the race here. So I'll let you make the case on Summer Fortune, who was seven to two on the morning line. And as we approach the off here, or say bet into three to five and Summer Fortune up towards four to one. What did you like about this runner? Well, I'll make the comparison for everyone that's going to talk about how American Pharaoh is lighting up the sky as a sire. Violence has been just as good. 21% with two-year-old first-time starters. For how good Jeremiah Inglehart has been with his two-year-olds this year, for this horse to go off at four to one, I thought I was robbing a bank. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, there was, a, there was a lot to like. And, yes, the barn, the barn was part of it. An angle that I love, and this is another one that comes from the Mike Maloney book, look into the dam and the dam's other produce. The dams who overproduce tend to not be as recognized in 
the marketplace as the splashy sires with their high winning percentages. So when you see a dam like Summer Dream, who had six winners from six starters, that's the kind of thing that you're going to want to take a look at. Another clue of the ability here is when you look at the sire's stud fee relative to the purchase price. And you see in this case, violence, 40,000 listed in the racing form as the stud fee. Horse sells for 200. That's a good sign. That can be a really, really good sign, by the way, when you're seeing it out of two-year-old in training sales, the ones happening in the same year. We'll save that for the right example somewhere down the line. This one was sold in October of 2018. So not that specific angle isn't as relevant. And I did a little bit dig deeper digging with Summer Fortune 2. Four of the, the siblings ran at two with only one winning. But that didn't bother me because of the time of year. You figure going six and a half in October isn't the same thing as going five furlongs in the summertime or four furlongs in the spring. I was figuring that was telling me that this one was going to be probably more suited towards a longer distance. So I did not hold that against it. There were a lot of positives here. For people who want to know, Spencer, the kind of data that we're um, talking about here about the, the dam produce and violence getting... 21% first time out, et cetera. Where, where do you get that information from? For the last four or five years, DRF formulator, they have sire snapshots where they give you percentages of, you know, different ages, different surfaces, different class levels, and the sibling summary where you can literally just click on, you know, you can just click on the dam. You can see how well she ran. Then you can just go down the list and it'll give you every single horse that uh, she's ever produced. It's a really, really good thing. It's how I found some of the horses at Saratoga that we talked about for that Woodward uh, day seminar. And just, it's what I always use. It's the first thing I check in a two-year-old race. I don't look through any workouts. I just go right into Sire, Sire Snapshot and the sibling summary. I agree. It's valuable info. And don't put past to just the idea of reading the closer looks. David Aragona, a very respected handicapper, wrote this one. And he'll do some of that deep diving for you. So don't forget to read those closer looks, especially for these maiden races. You will find some gold nuggets in there as well. But yeah, I saw it as a two horse race in terms of betting. I bet Summer Fortune to win, and I did take a small exacta just covering or say over Summer Fortune, basically just to get my stake back and a little more in case or say ran to those odds and ran off the screen. Maybe I was just scarred from Chad Brown beating me in race four. No, I wasn't. I actually, I actually did this like this. Uh, I, I was able to dope out that this $1.2 million daughter of Pharaoh and Life at 10 might just be the goods, but I, I thought there was too much value the main bet by far was summer fortune on the win end what did you do betting wise here i think this is something that has to be talked about is when we talk about value if you like two horses in a race and not taking this example but or we, we could this one being summer fortune is four to one and the other horse you like is three to five you have to be right so many more times with orsay to create a profit whereas summer fortune you only have to be right two or three times out of you know 10 races you're already making your money back if let's say that like i picked or say and they won okay i make a little bit of money back but summer fortune is the bet you just have to make over time if you want to be a winning horse player 
So does that mean you just bet to win? Did you bet win place? What did you? How did you actually put the wager through? Sorry, I ended up uh, betting Summer Fortune to win. All right. Yes. Well, we we were we were in very similar shape. Another thing about Summer Fortune that's just obvious but is worth saying that bullet work meant something to me too. Uh, the four furlongs from the gate uh, on October twelfth. That certainly was worth was worth noting as well. All right. So we're gonna bring you the call of this race from Belmont with Larry Colmus. We need this Summer Fortune. Summer Fortune shoots out of the gate to the front. With Bells of War away in second, Orsay is third on the outside. And then it's Burst of Vixen away running in fourth. Followed by Princess Pow, Undine. And at the back of the pack is Fashion Rules. So up the back stretch they go. Summer Fortune, the leader by two. Orsay is second as Barista Vixen goes up on the outside and grabs third. About five lengths, now six lengths off the lead through a 22.94 quarter. Really starting to scatter on the far turn. And then it's uh, Princess Pow fourth on the inside, but a good 10 lengths off the lead. Then it's Bells of War followed by Undine and five lengths back to Fashion Rules as they make their way around the far turn. Summer Fortune motoring along here and Orsay is in pursuit. And they're eight lengths ahead of the rest after a 46.29 half. They're into the stretch and it is Summer Fortune in front by a length and a half. Orsay is second. Six lengths back to Barista Vixen in third. Coming down to the eighth pole and Summer Fortune has opened up a four-length lead on Orsay. Then comes Barista Vixen on the outside, who's closing late into second position. Summer Fortune, Barista Vixen, Summer Fortune. All the way by a length and a half. And then it was Barista Vixen, Orsay ends up third, and then Undine. I do love it, Spencer, when they run around the track like trained squirrels. What was your reaction to Belmont's eighth race on Sunday? For those of you who uh, don't know, I'm a pretty big wrestling fan. I was doing the Shane McMahon money dance all the way to the window there. That was such a really good good run by the horse Summer Fortune. The gate workout maybe did tip the hand a little bit, showed that gate speed, and Orsay got stuck in a position having to do dirty work, doesn't even end up running second. I wouldn't be too negative about Orsay. I think there are those who are going to say, ah, perfect trip, didn't get it done, overhype, going to be bet next time, heavily again anyway, et cetera, et cetera. I'm inclined to give another shot based on what we saw there. What did you think about Orsay? I think the thing with these Pharaoh babies is he's been doing so well on the turf, and this was a dirt race, so maybe giving one more shot is fine. But I'm also going to try and contest a lot of the Pharaoh babies because it's the same thing with Zenyatta out west. I remember when I was writing all the Southern California write-ups for Scott Shapiro and such that they would just make these horses three to five and they didn't even look like they could really run all that fast to start off with. It's the same thing with the Pharaohs in the dirt, it seems. they yeah, Sure, he's had a couple win, but More than they're, a couple. Just getting, they're just getting hammered at the window, though. Even if you pick all the right winners, I think you're probably still negative for his dirt runners so far compared to his turf runners where he's got a couple stake winners already. Definitely. They do seem to be running better on turf. I think that's right. This one on the damp side, you got life at 10, which means Malibu moon, which means you would think dirt would be fine. And I can't say she didn't handle the dirt. I think with what they paid, etc., they'll be making another dirt try and more ground try before they do something radical like try her on the turf. But I, but I would agree with that. I'd love to see the stats. They're out there maybe it's a John Camardo question again, to look at the Faro progeny dirt versus turf in terms of 
some more sophisticated stats like ROI and impact value as well as strike rate. John, if you're listening, we'll, we'll get to working on that one maybe after the Breeders' Cup because people do love it. And, of course, the major difference with Zenyatta, you know, one foal a year, two to make it to the races. With Farrow, we've got him out here running all the time. If you can find some sort of inefficiency tilted in your favor with a sire, you've got a, a real chance to take it. One thing I'll note, we didn't talk too much about these other horses pre-race because we obviously saw it as a two-horse affair. But Barista Vixen took some real money for a Bill Mott first-time starter into the teeth of these favorites, or and, and really especially Orsay, uh, how heavily she was bet. And what I mean by that is somebody might say, oh, six to one in the morning line, and then what was Barista Vixen in the end? Do you have it in front of you? She was nine to one. Right. So you might say, oh, that's cold, nine to one off a of six to one. Not so fast. And this is one where you really need a little bit of feel. But when you've got one being bet off the board to the degree that Orsay was, and you've got a factor like Mott first out that usually doesn't catch money, this Barista Vixen can run and is worth taking another look back at, I would say. Any other thoughts for you coming out of this race? I think with Barista Vixen, if you look at the work tab, the work tab was not as good as Orsay, but it was just as solid. And it's the same thing where we talked about David Donk back at Saratoga, these horses that sure they're going up in price, but if they're not, you know, 15, 20 to one, like they should be, and they're right around that nine, eight, seven to one, someone's betting these horses. So someone must have a good opinion on it. And the horse ran great. Yeah, she ran very well and is one I'll be curious to see what they do with. I would imagine you might also see a change up there in terms of either adding distance or who knows in in the mop barn uh, maybe even a switch over to turf at some point we'll we'll have to take a look but i think this race is going to hopefully end up being an all right race what kind of buyer figure did summer fortune earn for it summer fortune got a 72 the buyer par for this race is a 75 so right there with the par orsay ended up with a 60 barista vixen had a 69 i am inclined again to give orsay maybe a little bit of a benefit of the doubt in terms of maybe this was too sharp maybe being in that chasing position wasn't for her i'm not i'm not ready to call her a, a morning glory slash uh overhyped horse just yet i i think even though it came in just under the par that this race and summer fortune specifically might end up being okay but summer fortune i'm guessing I mean, just my gut is that next time I might look at the PPs and have a fond memory of Summer Fortune, but say, you know what, that was the day you wanted to have her against three to five or say when she was four to one, as opposed to uh, necessarily one I'm going to want to bet back. What would you take on Orsay in her next start? What would be value? Oh, it's, you know how hard that game is. It really all depends on who else shows up. It feels She feels like one who's going to probably be the favorite. I can say this. I do not think I'd be betting. I will not be betting at odds on. And I don't know if I'd get, be able to get too excited at something to five. But it all depends, of course, on who shows up. So... We'll see. She'll certainly be uh, making a return to the races at some point, presumably at the Big A in a few weeks' time. All right, Spencer, thank you so much for letting me steal your host chair this week. We might do this from time to time. I think next week we should probably take the week off. I don't want to get lost in the Breeders' Cup chaos. Is that all right with you? That's fine with me. I just want to make one quick statement. Uh, next week, hopefully next Thursday, 
I should be doing a podcast with a couple guys from the Gallup. We're going to be going through every single race for the Breeders' Cup Friday, Saturday. So stay tuned to Twitter, the Daily Gallup. We will be giving updates on that. Okay, good idea. And of course, in the Money Players podcast, as mentioned above, we're going to be having a ton of fun content next week. Be on the lookout for that in our channel as well. This show has been a production of In the Money Media. In the Money Media's business manager is Drew Cotney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. The real host of this show is Spencer Luganbuehl. I'm the producer with the big mouth, Peter Thomas Fornatal, and we will see you next time. For 35 years, the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation has been dedicated to saving thoroughbred racehorses no longer able to compete on the racetrack from possible neglect, abuse, and slaughter. The oldest and largest charity in the U.S. devoted to racehorses, the TRF makes a promise of lifelong sanctuary to those horses unable to pursue a second athletic career. Unique within the aftercare industry, the horses of the TRF find their second chance in the role of teachers through the TRF Second Chances Program, which provides vocational training in seven correctional facilities across the U.S. The program is Saving Horses and Saving Lives. Learn more at www.trfinc.org, and please use the special In the Money podcast link to donate, trfinc.org players.